Welcome back to the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. This is Nick, and uh, today we are jumping back into a Q&A. So these Q&A sessions are all available on YouTube and are happening in 2022 on the first Thursday of each month. So if you're listening to this, if it's the first Thursday or the first Thursday is coming up soon of November or December, uh, we hope you'll join us, join me, that is, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, wherever you like to watch live streams, I should be there. Uh, we'll be happy to get your questions answered. But today we're jumping into a bunch of topics uh, around practicing and using bebop to create further creativity in your music. The question was, does bebop stifle creativity? And as you can tell, I don't feel like that's a good way of framing it. And uh, there's also practicing sight reading of chord changes and how to do that coping mechanisms for when you're overwhelmed. I think we all have those moments where we get overwhelmed. And so hopefully some of today's conversation will allow you to find ways to deal with that. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think about these episodes on your favorite podcast app. Give us a rating and uh, we'll be glad to try to give you more of what you're most interested in. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. and We'll catch you in the next one. A couple of things. I'll just talk about really grateful today to see that uh, the new album uh, cast of characters live in Denton is now on Amazon music's uh, the pitch playlist so a couple Amazon music placements for my new record if you haven't heard that it's a it's a record and a series of videos um, that are up now on YouTube so you can check those out and so it's tunes from the cast of characters record which came out last year last year in February February 29th 28th and then we were supposed to go on tour but of course the world had other plans for us so we kind of got sidelined a little bit but that was super exciting so I'm really glad about that and I'm super excited to say that we have some really big announcements coming over the next few weeks uh, between now and hopefully by the time we're at ITF Uh, so the trombone festival posted something today about my involvement there so I'm excited to be going to the ITF the International Trombone Festival this year and that's, of course, in Columbus, Georgia, in uh, July. Some big announcements happening for the Jazz Trombone Day 2021 at UNT. So I'm excited about that. Uh, Brian asked, were you ever uncertain you'd secure a job as a musician? Did you have a day job? How long did it take after school until you could pay the bills only with music? Oh, yes, I was, of course, uncertain about uh, being a musician, what that meant. Did I have a day job? The last time I had a day job, I mean, it depends if you think being a professor is a day job or not because I guess I have that job. I'm mean, running a jazz label. It's kind of like a day job. It's not. It's a lot of uh, you know computer stuff and running marketing for people and promotions and all that. Like maybe that counts as a day job. I don't know. I worked at a pizzeria in high school, and then I worked at a sub shop, sandwich shop, and then after that I worked at a telemarketing center. That was the last like day gig that I had. That was in college after my freshman year and after that it's been mostly all music i mean i did other things when i finished at juilliard i signed up to be a caterer uh, and work in catering and i went through the training and then i never took a gig so i did all the training and i never actually did anything so i don't know how long it was just i didn't really give myself any other option so i just did it you know dj asks uh, do you ever write contrafacts over tunes to record perform or do you only use that type of thing as an exercise the closest I've ever come to actually using a contrafact, they, the short answer is I usually use it as an exercise, but the closest I ever came was I had a tune called Mechanical Delay, and we played it on a couple of concerts at Juilliard, and I thought about recording it on my first record, 
it was a contrafact uh, you stepped out of a dream that's the closest I ever came you know uh, but I, I never uh, recorded one but they're good exercises to write a contrafact uh, I mean also if you count rhythm changes or blues then yeah for sure I've definitely recorded you know some kind of version of of that you're at a gig and Wycliffe is in the front row drinking water right before you solo. Your slide feels like gravel. Do you A, spit on slide, B, grab Wycliffe's water, or C, gravel solo? Uh, C, gravel solo. I never worry about that stuff too much. I mean, if it's really, really bad, you know, I'll do something about it. But if I'm on the gig and my slide isn't, it's like, all right, well, I just have to deal with this. Prepared answer is like, make sure you've got your slide lubricant in your pocket or on the stage somewhere so that you can actually uh, fix the problem rather than just ignoring it, right? As jazz musicians, we improve our technique when playing transcriptions. What do you think are benefits of using classical etudes to improve technique as opposed to transcriptions? Uh, both. You have to do both because the classical stuff is going to train your technique and then um, you'll be able to utilize that when you're playing the transcriptions. I like to use the Biche book. I like to use the Arbenz book. I like to use the Rochu book. I like to use the Koprosh book. I've tried to play the Charlier trumpet etudes on trombone. It's kind of hard. I like to play Bach cello suites. I like to do Bach partitas, like violin stuff. I'll play that stuff in the upper register to practice that. So it's a good, a good combination of both. So what are some transcriptions you know by heart? Which of those have you learned in every key? I've never learned a, tra a full transcription in every key. That is not something that I would do. That sounds like a waste of time to me. <laughs> I would take little segments though, 100% lines, or like a head, like a well-composed head, like Donna Lee, take that through the keys. What do I know? Which transcriptions do I know by heart? There's like a handful of Curtis, a handful of JJ uh, that I know I could play for you right now. Uh, like Blue Train, like Laura, like Mysterioso, like Yesterdays, these are all JJ. And then like Blue Train, that's probably the only one with Curtis. Or like Five Spot After Dark, there's a great solo on. I could probably play that. Yeah, so I wouldn't take the time to like take a whole transcription through all the keys. That's um, that's not something I would uh, spend the time doing, you know? It's kind of like, it's kind of overkill, you know? You need the phrases. You need the 2-5 language. Uh, you need all of that. You'd be better off taking Donnelly through the keys, I think. Have you done open non-jazz jams before? If so, what are your thoughts on them? If not, then disregard. So yeah, I've played on non-jazz jams. I don't know. It's fun. You do something different. Obviously, I'm a jazz musician, so mostly I do jazz-related things. But um, I think that you've got to roll with the punches and be flexible. you got to be very, very flexible to different musical styles, you know? And so every once in a while, we're having to play in like a funk thing or an R&B thing or whatever. I did a set. Not a set, but I sat in and kind of jammed with um, this drummer... Jojo Mayer and his band, he has a band called Nerve. I played with them in Berlin like uh, a couple years ago. And that's just like ambient groove based stuff. Man, this is really lagging. I'm really sorry. So yeah, I've done it. It's fun. You gotta be flexible in different styles. You gotta transcribe different styles to get that language. It's just like anything else, you know? It's just like uh, jazz, learn the language and then you gotta um, apply it in a different setting. Like Fred Wesley solo, so you can play like that. So do you have a go-to jazz combo instrumentation that you you like to use with trombone trombone and tenors with full rhythm sections sound yeah i like to do duo i have three duo albums with a pianist named chris yemba chris and i grew up together in upstate new york now he's the pianist in the airmen of note so we have three albums but yeah my go-to lineup is tenor trombone and guitar and then sometimes i switch out tenor for bass clarinet and so we get trombone guitar and uh, bass clarinet when i started my first band when i was 
finishing college, um, I would have um, just trombone and guitar as the main lineup. And then I was like, oh, we need a saxophone. So I added the saxophone back in. Do you agree with Miles when he said bebop stifles creativity and that modal music let people play more melodically creative? Or do you think he said that because he was tired of the trends? I can't read Miles' mind, man. Uh, seemed like a real temperamental cat. I think bebop is essential to learn, man. Like, whether or not you're going to play that way all the time is irrelevant to the fact that it's, like, really rich with vocabulary. It's really rich in understanding how harmony works, how functional harmony works. When you go and jump into modal stuff, you can just say, like, oh, I'm switching modes, and then you just jump around, and then anything goes, right? So it's kind of maybe not super useful. Yeah, I think he wanted to open up things for himself, you know? He didn't want to have to keep on playing the same thing. Modal music is more free. I think uh, sometimes playing bebop is kind of like connecting the dots, you know, like paint by numbers or something. Because, like, there's a certain language that you play, like real bebop, you know? Like, if there's a certain language you play rhythmically and harmonically, and there's a certain language that you have to stick to. Like, you get too far in different directions, and it doesn't really sound like bebop anymore. You know, I wouldn't say that when I play, I'm always authentically bebop, you know? Like, my vocabulary drifts. And it's a challenge, you know, to stay so specific uh, to that era and that thing. It's like someone like Barry Harris, you know, super deep, still doing it in that tradition, you know. And think about Charlie Parker and Sonny Stead and Dizzy Gillespie, compare them to like Miguel Zanon and just thinking of like modern players, you know, you know, like Ambrose or somebody that playing trumpet and it's like totally different. You know, dealing with the same tunes, same vocabulary, same notes, but it's just totally different. Uh, Brian asked, do you ever pra practice sight reading changes? Do you ever practice sight hearing changes? That was something I was talking to somebody, Taylor, who sometimes comes on here on, and asks questions. He asked me um, about Juilliard stuff. That was something that was on the Juilliard audition, sight hearing, or like hearing some changes and playing along, or like changing keys and not telling you what's happening. There was a a period where we had to um, uh, hear stuff, like hear them change keys in a blues or rhythm changes or hear them uh, start playing a tune and kind of play along. But yeah, we do that in my studio all the time, being sight, sight reading changes, like sight reading tunes. That's an important skill. It's a very important skill. It happens in big band all the time. You got to sight read the changes. So yes, is the short answer. What's your take on playing over lo-fi hip hop beats? How would you implement your jazz chops while playing over those type of beats? You got to play less chromatically it's more modal, you know. You can play bebop language, but then it just sounds like you're playing bebop language over the lo-fi kind of hip-hop beats. You got to be more melodic, I think. That's something I've been thinking about. I don't know if I really like it or not, though. I've been thinking about trying to practice, like, playing that style, though. Because it's definitely, like, popular right now. And I'm down to, like, experiment always, you know. Your jazz chops, you have to kind of rein them in, you know. If you're playing crazy two fives over, like, one chord, that's cool to some people. And other people are just like, what is this guy doing? I always try to say, what does the music need right now? You know, that's my little phrase. It doesn't need you to play giant steps over lo-fi. All right, DJ asked, what was my favorite part of this year's Jazz Trombone Boot Camp? My favorite part was getting to kind of check in with everyone, kind of like towards the end of the week, uh, and hear about what what were the takeaways. And plus, that and the, just the master classes and getting to hear the like practical advice and the way that other people like, try to explain or to explain better the things that I try to explain. Uh, and so for me, that's always super helpful to watch other people teach or watch other people explain the topics that I deal with also as an educator trying to explain things. 
Um, so that was super interesting to me and, and getting to hear like what was helpful to everybody else was super helpful uh, to me as well and super interesting and it's my favorite part. My favorite part is to see all the things that people uh, have at the end of the week to be like, I'm going to do this and this, 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 this. And so it's super cool to be like, because in the moment, sometimes you get like glazed over faces, you know, uh, because there's just like a lot happening. On a recent Instagram post, you talked about the use of space and solos. Can you share a few examples, whether on the trombone or otherwise? I, I, I had a video with a clip of me like taking the horn off my face. Uh, I said like, hey, sometimes you just got to take the damn trombone right off your face, you know? Um, to get yourself to shut up because you know the train talks about the same thing you got to take it out or somebody said that about train you got to take it the, the horn out of his mouth to get him to stop playing or something i mean space is a very relative term it could be short spaces or long spaces but it always is to me the way that i think about it is it's a result of a phrase that comes to an end if you play with logical phrasing a phrase will end and the resultant will be space like if you focus too much on like leaving space, you'll just stop playing. But if you come to the end of a phrase and then leave space, like it's not even leaving space, it's just like letting the music breathe. That's kind of how I like to think about it more. So that's what I think of space, but there's nothing that like comes to mind. I mean, JJ, I mean, so there's a great example, one that I like to point out in terms of like interaction in space is JJ on Laura. It's like he plays some ba doo bo 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 be doo and then Tommy Flanagan plays ba doo 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 ba ba doo ba bo be bo day be be bo be ba bo be ba bo ba 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 bo be ba ba bo do so there's like short spaces and long spaces I don't know there's not like a clear example just what I try to say is like listen to your favorite soloists and like listen to how they finish a phrase and what happens after. That's how you get the drummer involved. That's how you get the rhythm section to play with you rather than against you or like make them feel like you're playing over them. You don't want that. You want to feel like it's like this. At least I want it to feel like it's to like this. Demetrius, any cool transcriptions that I've been working on? Not so much. I was working on some Chick Corea stuff before the summer. How do you stay ahead reading harder material? That's a good question. I mean, it's the same way you stay ahead when you're reading uh, easier material and that is you have to get familiar and be able to recognize patterns in music by just looking right so that's why the trickiest thing to read is a badly copied piece of music or one that has unexpected ac accidentals because when you to get good at sight reading you got to one sight read a lot and two you have to start to recognize patterns that's why like when you first start playing salsa music if you're a jazz musician it's really hard to get that rhythmic um, precision right away because you're reading a totally different vocabulary of rhythms. Same if you go from re reading jazz stuff to funk stuff because all of a sudden you've got 16th note rests or like pop horn stuff, you know, like it's all different rhythmic vocabulary so your brain has to process that. So you have to get used to reading those rhythms and so you've got to memorize these rhythmic patterns or scalar patterns or melodic patterns or triad patterns, all these different kinds of things. And so with more involved material you have to sight read more harder stuff all the time you just have to read stuff all the time so get out the arbens book read through stuff get etude books read through stuff find things on the internet transcriptions read all different kind of stuff and just don't stop and try to keep looking ahead and you, the biggest thing though is you got to expect that you're going to read it correctly like i hold myself to the standard of like i'm going to play this perfect and if it's not i um, am not happy you know 
Like, I hold myself to a very high standard with sight reading. And if I'm not playing it perfectly, I'm not happy, you know. So holding yourself to that standard, sight reading all the time. You know, I try to sight read most lessons with my students because it's so important to being a working musician. If you want to be just an artist and do your own music, like, don't worry about it. But if you want to function in the scene and play with other people, you've got to be a good sight reader especially in a big scene like New York or LA. It's uh, non-negotiable or London. Uh, do you ever get overwhelmed with work and what's your coping, coping mechanism? Do you ever get overwhelmed? I mean, yes, for sure. Yes, I get overwhelmed for sure. My, my coping mechanism is running. I just bought new running shoes. So here's my new running shoes to prove that I do run. Uh, I had to retire the other ones. They were falling apart. Uh, I like to run. Yeah, that's about it. That's all I can do. I can just force myself to run. I had also have a Peloton bike at home and uh, do like exercise. That's basically my um, coping me mechanism to get away from that music stuff or too much stuff to do is to exercise and trying to take more time to just like play with my dog. But um, I'm big into lists. I can't show you right now because I'm using all my devices, but I make lists and, and I, like, I like to cross lists off, you know, like going through stuff. I'm, I'm kind of into like productivity hacking and that sort of thing but i'm trying to kind of let go of all of it to be honest because it's a, been kind of like an obsession for a while and i'm just like i just need to just be a little bit you know what was the biggest advice slash lesson curtis gave you uh, the biggest lesson man is listening to his records just like how much output he had and hearing people talk about how he was playing live and like off of the off of the um, records, you know, just like live in person, how much trombone he was playing. I wish I could have heard that, you know, the live Curtis Fuller from 1980s. You know, that's what I hear is like that was the vibe. But the thing I always say is that Curtis talked about, you know, recording more original music because that's what survives beyond your lifetime. Not your improvised solos, like the the melodies and the what you contribute to the scene at large is kind of the thing that sticks, you know, beyond beyond your lifetime. So what's the most commercial slash pop gig you've had? I've played plenty of horn section gigs. I mean, I've recorded some stuff with Mike Davis for some pop people. Did some Christmas records. A Christmas record of a guy named Brett Eldridge we made our Christmas record for. I mean, I did a lot of playing with this band, this YouTube band called Postmodern Jukebox. I would put that in the, that category as well. What young players should we know about? Jack Courtright, DJ Rice are two young guys that are in my UNT kind of circles that I know about that are doing great stuff. Another one of my students, Jackson Courtright. Uh, one of my former students from Florida State plays with the um, Dirty Dozen Brass Band. If you're into that kind of New Orleans vibe, his name's TJ Norris. He's doing great things. A lot of cats coming out of um, Michael Deese's studio. Chris Glassman, great bass drummer, Alton Senkilar. Um, if you don't know Corey Wilcox, he's really great, but he's my age, so I don't know if that's young or old. Uh, if you like Andy Clausen, he runs this band co-runs this band called the Westerlies. If you don't know Andy, he's really, really great, doing great things. Uh, Jeffrey Miller is in New York uh, from New Orleans. He's he's doing great things. Kalia Vandever, Van Devener. You can find her on Instagram, I'm sure. In the pop commercial world, there's a guy named Darius Jones. He's played with like, kind of with everybody, man. He's playing with all these people. Um, all horn section stuff, pop stuff, doing his great original stuff. Reggie Chapman. If you don't, I mean, he's older than me, but you know, on the West Coast, let me go. Oh, there's more people. I can't. I gotta get. I gotta get them all out here. So like, uh, Edo Mushalem. If you don't know Edo, he's killing. He's in L.A. Um, he did the the Monk Institute. Eric Miller, another Monk Institute guy. 
John Hadamia out there too. And then there's some guys up from that are Marshall Jilks's students up at MSM doing great things. Jack Cotts is one guy I met. Uh, Joe Giordano, I think. Yeah, Giordano. No shortage of great trombone players out there these days. If you don't know Javier Nero, Javier is great. We went to Juilliard together. He's at um, he's in the U.S. Army Blues now. Just got the lead trombone job there. He's a couple years younger than me. So it depends, again, how you define young. Advice for condensing your bio to less than 200 words. Yes, let somebody else read it and let them cut it out. Cut the stuff out because there's a lot of stuff that you think is important that's not really that important. Or there's like shorter ways to say things. You know, you got to find the highlights. It's hard. It's hard to get it down to that short, you know. But um, I find having somebody who's good at writing look at it and say, like, what's essential here and what's not essential? Because often what we think is essential is not essential. And it's really easy for me. If I read your bio, DJ, I could be like, oh, no, get rid of this, 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 this. Because I'm not attached to it. And you're attached to it, you know. And I'm attached to my bio. You know, I think this is important. I think this is important. Oh, they got to know about. But it's like they don't, they don't got to know about anything. You know, they can uh, go find out more if they want to. Um, so just it's a highlight reel. Get somebody else to read it. Try to get somebody. Try to make it interesting. That's the thing about bios. I'll tell you this. This is I'll put on my um, media company mindset here for a second and talk about bios. Your bio is probably too boring. I'll tell you that. You know, we we want to be serious and we copy the way that other people's bios are written that are like our heroes or like someone that we look up to or a professor or something like that. Nine times out of ten, that person did not think twice about their bio. Somebody wrote it and it's the most boring thing. If you have an interesting bio, it actually can hold somebody's attention and they would might actually want to read it. When it's just like a list of so-and-so shared the stage with ba 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 ba, and you're talking about guest artists from your college experience, it's not going to cut it. It's not interesting. It's not interesting to read. There's nothing in there that somebody can like use to like highlight a performance. You know, you want to put some stuff in there that is inter- is remarkable. You know, somebody remembers you know my bio has gone through some edits there was a time when it was kind of outrageous like in 2015 2016 there was some funny stuff that a guy had written that i left in there because i was like man i wanted to see if people said and then people started bringing it up to me in interviews and i was like oh it's working people are reading the bio because it's weird he said something like flying through the trees like a winged squirrel or something like something like something you'd never expect to read in somebody's bio you know being interesting is, can be uh, a tough task, but is a, an important one if you want people to remember remember you. You know, I'm excited for the rest of um, the summer. I've got a book coming out really soon. The the trombone festival is coming out soon. That's going to be fun. I got announcements about Jazz Trombone Day, which is going to be really great. And then a new record uh, is almost finished for the fall. So a bunch of things happening. But at any rate, hopefully next week we'll get the tech back running at a full speed here. Uh, So thank you for bearing with me, and thanks for checking out the stream. We will catch everybody next week with another episode. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll catch you all very, very soon.